Epiphany, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Hello, dear ones. Did you know our podcast sponsor, the nonprofit I See That, the Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy, and Transformation, is on social media. You can find out more about I See That's Blink of an Eye initiatives, learn more about the science behind spinal cord injury, and build community with others in the spinal cord injury and trauma healing space by following I See That on Instagram at I See That Nonprofit. That's spelled with the letters I C T H A T Nonprofit. And on Facebook at the URL www.facebook.com backslash ic.that.org. Links to those platforms will be in the show notes. I also want to tell you about a company that strives to help with those spinal cord injuries through regeneration and reconstruction. Thank you to Orthofix, the creators of a medical device that encourages spinal fusion and quality of life. They are one of the first financial underwriters of the Blink of an Eye Family Support and Navigation Team for spinal cord injury families in the first 30 days of crisis. I am thrilled about the Blink of an Eye nonprofit team, which has begun to provide emotional, spiritual, and mental health support, as well as expert logistical and medical navigation tips for spinal cord injury families. The Blink of an Eye Family Support and Navigation Team is focused on the crisis in the first 30 days of injury, helping families advocate and collaborate with ICU and hospital staff and to begin to recalibrate their lives. I see that, through their Blink of an Eye services, wants to provide an extraordinary experience for families in crisis, despite the devastation of a catastrophic spinal cord injury. For more about the Blink of an Eye support teams, go to the parent nonprofit, www.iseethat.org. If you know of a spinal cord injured family in the crisis hours and days from injury, please connect them to www.icthat.org. We are so grateful to our donors and volunteers in this effort. And if you are interested in making a difference in the lives of those in spinal cord injury trauma, you too can be part of the Blink of an Eye Family Support and Navigation Team effort as well, as they are recruiting navigators who have real-life family spinal cord injury experience, trauma experts, and catastrophic disability experts now. I see that is providing expert training in relational ways to support 
and empower families in crisis. If you're interested in this training, send me an email to louise at blinkofaneyepodcast.com. And the Blink of an Eye Family Support and Navigation Team is also recruiting prayer warriors to keep hope alive, as well as artists and letter writers for their Hope Lifters campaign to send daily words of inspiration and encouragement to spinal cord injury families in crisis. Oh yes, this nonprofit is filling a crisis gap in spinal cord injury to support families and medical teams from despair to hope to right action. Send me an email if interested to louise at blinkofaneyepodcast.com. As Margaret Mead said, there is no doubt what a small group of committed citizens can do to change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Now, for today's episode. Archer and I were still settling into our new shepherd rehab environment, which came with seemingly endless streams of daily ups and downs. I thought that was just part of this recovery, and I assumed it was normal, since that was all we had known. What I did not know is that it was not the Shepherd Center's normal. Perhaps the transformation of Archer's hospital rehab room into another healing sanctuary was not their normal either, but it was for us. Moving from the intensive care unit to the rehab floor meant new doctors, treatments, and routines. I had received text messages from friends who had done some research and told me to ask for Dr. Don Leslie as Archer's rehab doctor. I had asked, but the doctor we were assigned to for the rehab was a different doctor. She was the one who was engrossed in a frivolous conversation with the other medical staff about how boring jury duty was while Archer was fighting with every ounce of his being to breathe. I had asked if we could change doctors, but was told we could not. I knew from Billy that she had already hurt Archer badly when she reached over to apply pressure to his neck and shoulder, so much so and unceasingly, even when he screamed to stop. It was a silent scream, since he had no voice. And Billy told me she had not. But maybe it was to realign him, or maybe it was intended to help. I don't know. But she provided no explanation and left Archer with heavy tears rolling down his face. That encounter also triggered another round of deep, long suctioning as she exited the room. It felt confusing again, and I felt helpless not knowing what the norm should be. No one was there to tell me. But we had our healing sanctuary, 
with its familiar photos and posters, crucifix, orchids, and essential oils. We had also hung three huge, three foot by six foot, or even eight foot, one of them, plastic banners that had arrived in a heavy tube, each one carrying a single word in large green block letters, faith, hope, and strength. A kind and industrious person back in Baltimore had sent them to us from the healing mass at the Cathedral of Mary Our Queen the week before. It was truly amazing what people in our community thought of to do, to remind us we were not alone. I don't know if that was their intention specifically, but it certainly was the impact, and we felt very connected and held, or at least I did. Each banner also carried many signatures, like one large petition. I loved that. And I found Archer staring at them often. I suspect he felt supported too. I was realizing what Didi Provosti Jasmine had said to me, that if I was to take care of Archer, I needed people to take care of me. It's a sobering and humble truth. Well, welcome to Episode 9, The Highs and Lows of Spinal Cord Injury Rehab. Here's a bit of context since a number of days had passed in our story. While I thought we would be in rehab for hours each day, it really wasn't like that. It was more like one hour in PT and then back to his room for a few hours and then another hour in OT. And that was a day. And it took us about an hour just to get ready and down the hall for each one. We still didn't have the rhythm down for that yet as I look back. I believe it was because Archer really couldn't go anywhere without at least one or two respiratory therapists nearby or at his side and someone to carry his oxygen tank. It was more manageable to have a person lug the big canister than to roll it because of the synchronization required with the rolling of Archer's electric chair. Oh yes, I should tell you that another amazing thing was happening behind the scenes. I was in touch with another mom of a quadriplegic, Kelly Sidnor. She is extraordinary, and so is her son Cole and her husband. I was able to ask her about the term for the chair, and I learned it was called a power chair. Good to know. But what Kelly and her husband might not ever fully know was how much the outreach meant to me, not just the outreach, and not just the outreach by someone who had been there and survived and was thriving, but the knowing that there was another intact family out there who had not imploded by all of this. My Billy was rocked to the core 
and I knew feeling very helpless when he spoke with Archer's rehab doctor. And that impacted me as well. I also really had no idea what was normal or not for Shepard. And even with the mishaps, I didn't know enough to ask Kelly what was normal. I was just receiving encouragement. I didn't yet have a sounding board, nor did I realize I needed one, but I did. I didn't know that all of Archer's breathing issues and breathing and lung equipment was not normal at the Shepherd Rehab Gym. And I didn't realize or know just how much the inability to breathe and all the lung equipment attached to Archer that was needed in close proximity so he didn't suffocate on mucus was holding him back from what it was that Shepard specialized in. Rehabilitation of winners. Well, despite being paralyzed from the neck and shoulders on down, there were two things Archer was excelling in. The first was noted by a Shepherd Center volunteer who helped deliver mail from room to room, who told us as he wheeled a large metal cart stacked with envelopes and packages into Archer's rehabilitation room. Young man, you have set the record for the most packages in one day. And he added, you must have a lot of people who love you back home. Yes, Archer did have that. He had a lot of people rooting for him and praying for him. And that was not only comforting, but I felt like that was the success. But the person who mattered most in our lives at that moment, whom I wanted to care about Archer and help him succeed, was our rehab doctor. It was confusing to me. I felt like she was not rooting for him at all. And it seemed she didn't care about his effort to just breathe or that she didn't understand that. Or maybe it was that she had already labeled him and her mind as damaged goods, not rehabable, not a winner. That thought haunted me. I needed her to believe in Archer. And I did not want to believe that about her or about Archer if it were true. But she had practically scoffed at him and I was the witness. I also knew I was just angry as a mother at how glaringly insensitive she was to Archer's struggles to live. And I believed Billy when he said she purposefully hurt Archer the couple days before as she pressed and twisted her fingers into his shoulder until he cried. I wanted to say, screw you, doctor. But I knew the power of words, and I bit my lip. My thoughts then darted to, screw rehab. Archer desperately wanted to breathe on his own. The PT had asked him what his goals were, and that's what he said, to breathe. Why couldn't rehab be for that? 
And then my thoughts started back to the rehab doctor, and I wondered about her, her background, what she did. And if that kind of a gouge was helpful to Archer. If it were, then explain it to us. Please, Shepherd Center, we need you to help us. Please just help Archer breathe on his own so he can do the rehab. I was all over the place internally, and I was mortified at my simmering desire to say something I knew I would regret to the doctor we needed so badly on our side. I was in a dilemma. I felt something was amiss, but I didn't want to rock the boat. But. Wouldn't it be better to confront this now? Oh, maybe it would blow over. Maybe my intuition was wrong. We did need to stay in this place of spinal cord injury expertise. It was Archer's best hope. Oh, my mind. My mind was a battleground of paradox. I wonder what you would have done. I was trying to be present and close to God's whisper. Yet I felt I had to think smart and think ahead for Archer to meet his goal. I felt I had to be Archer's champion. But I feared that in my anger, I might say something that could jeopardize his chances of staying. I was simmering that the doctor could be so cruel But I was worried my words to her would be harmful to her. But she was cruel. No, I could feel the story building in my head. And I was having trouble discerning what part was the truth and what part my fear was fueling. It had fleetingly crossed my mind that a rehabilitation doctor and the rehab staff might not have any idea of what goes on in an intensive care unit for a quadriplegic those days or weeks before they get to rehab. Might have no idea for someone like Archer about the struggle to breathe. Maybe she had no idea of this life or death struggle. After all, Rehab doctors are focused on muscle development and oversee exercise machines and workout gyms. And I could see that here at Shepherd. They work with quadriplegics who arrive ready for rehab, not on ventilators, if ever they were on one. Maybe our rehab doctor had no idea of Archer's collapsed lungs and three chest tubes jammed into his sides and the lung punctures in both lungs. Maybe she had no idea of what it is like to feel a hose of turbulent air pressure pumped into your lungs while you also feel like you're suffocating, not able to take in any air numerous times a day. Not to mention having no voice and having no arms and hands to grab, to stabilize, to push away and having to be totally reliant on others to help you stay alive? Could it be possible she did not know? Could it be possible she did not understand? 
Maybe she really had no idea and saw Archer as not worth her time. But I thought that was rubbish thinking on my part because of course she would know his injury history. She was the rehabilitation doctor. Of course she had a full understanding of Archer's prior hospital experience before he came to Shepherd. Doctors are supposed to know these things and take the time and care to read the records. I had signed the Atlantic Care Records Request form asking for all of Archer's records to be released to Shepard. Well, what I did know is that Archer's friends were beginning to arrive at Shepard and they knew his history and I knew they cared and I knew they believed in him. And all of those facts were good for his recovery. Well, in this episode today, we'll hear from two of Archer's high school friends about their first visit and the friend's experience to the Shepherd Center through their eyes. It's enlightening to hear the viewpoint of high schoolers on trauma and friendship and the type of preparation that helped them be with Archer. I'll also bring you in on some interactions with the medical staff. And you can think about what you might do if faced with similar circumstances in a hospital. For me, I was beginning to realize how complicated is the journey of navigating the major medical issues alongside the interpersonal issues with hospital personnel. And I began to reach out to other quadriplegic parents or to ask to be connected And I learned that our journey was hardly unique and was certainly not over. Before I share with you the updates, another group of thoughts I had that was forming, which I found in my personal notes, was that the medical staff, wherever you happen to be, have a lot of power over your future. That's what my note said. And it occurred to me that that fact alone might be why so many families might not ask questions or advocate. It is risky to rock the boat. Medical staff are experts and know a lot of medical things you do not. And I could see again that doctors are uncomfortable being questioned and thus don't like to be questioned and put up walls and distance so that they won't be. I had to figure out another way. What helped me through all this turmoil? Well, constant personal dialogue with God in my head. And those posters sent to Archer, which said faith, hope, and strength. Like Archer, I too often shifted my attention to those huge banners with the large green letters and was reminded like an alarm clock to wake up and have faith and hope. Yes, it helped, but it did not make 
the growing physical agitation and the mental anxiety all go away. So I ask God for inner strength on what to say or do or not say or do. (laughs) I did have over 20 years back then of teaching conflict resolution and transformation skills and I had relied frequently on that relational skill set for the often delicate navigation with hospital staff. The thing is, I also had over 20 years of witnessing incredible shifts in interpersonal conflict. And as a mediator, being in the middle of facilitating people with high and strong emotions who were often desperately trying to change the other person and who were also embittered as well in the struggle to do so, while also feeling helpless when the other person was uncaring or stony cold or rigid, sometimes mean-spirited. And it went both ways. I'd seen my fair share as a family and workplace transformative mediator. And in all of it, it never got old to me because I have clung to a deep belief in human capacity to engage meaningfully. Those strong emotions or that rigidity or closed-mindedness can be transformed into clarity and responsiveness with a safe process. I've seen it thousands of times. Indeed, conflict shifts and breakthroughs do come about often when a tender, if not forbidden question is posed. Questions like, what is most upsetting for you? Or what is not working for you in this interaction? Or what is it you most want the other person to know or understand? But I also knew that many people outside a transformative mediation experience have not experienced conflict shifts that come about in a safe environment of the mediated face-to-face dialogue. And without a safe structure, when a person is in conflict or a conflict that is brewing with someone else and one person asks the other person one of those questions and they're not in a safe relationship, Well, yeah, if they're in a safe relationship, it can transform the conflict. But if the person is in a position of hierarchical power and feels challenged, well, that vulnerable moment can backfire and can make a situation worse. I knew this as a relational conflict theorist. I knew this from what people reported. And I knew this from life. That is what was nagging at me these days in the story, as I so wanted a safe environment where I could ask the rehab doctor, do you think Archer has capacity to do well here. And I knew I had to be prepared for whatever answer that was. 
And what I really wanted to ask was, do you like Archer enough to explore the capacity he has or might have? Are you willing to bet on Archer to work with him to find that capacity for his well-being? I decided to keep my mouth shut because I didn't think it was safe. And I prayed Archer's body would turn the corner and give his rehab doctor something she felt was worthy of her efforts to work with. The rest of the OT and PT Shepherd staff, they were incredible. And it was like being at Disneyland for quadriplegics, honestly, looking around the gym at what all the others were doing. And even with all the contraptions that went with Archer attached to his body, Archer was making some strides in the PT and OT areas. You'll hear about some fascinating tricks about how to strengthen the body, which I'll share with you as I wrote to update my family and friends. I hope you learned some things about the potential of rehab if you ever find yourself in a similar life situation. It was astounding to me how Archer was beginning to take control of his future each and every day. You might consider a time in your life when you began to regain some control which you had lost for a while, even if you were still surrounded by and faced with large barriers. So follow along for how the development of Archer's rehab progress was fostered despite ventilator tubes, oxygen masks, and an inexiflator machine. It is extraordinary what the soul's purpose is here to do on this earth. Despite that human condition of fracture and repair. Fracture and repair. Yes, welcome, welcome to episode nine. The highs and lows of spinal cord injury rehab. Settle in, take a deep breath, and anticipate some ups and downs, and anticipate good learnings for yourself now or in your future. Here we go. Family and Friends Update September 24th, 2015, day 51. What a difference a day makes. Okay, let's see. Would you like to hear the good things first or the bumps in the road? Which is a loving framing we are taking from a wise soul we know and love. To refer to the ups and downs, we now believe are just part of the way to miraculous healing. So, of course, we want to talk about the awesomest, most excellent, amazing things. Okay, here we go. It's truly amazing, and we can thank God for his strength and the strength he is breathing into Archer. I'll start with eating. Well, Archer hasn't been very interested, and as I coax him each meal, I then have to relax 
and tell him, I know it will come when his body is ready. But each day, he is getting better and better, from one to two bites of oatmeal for breakfast, to eight bites, and from one to two bites of sweet potato for dinner, to five to six, so long as buttered and brown sugar. And tonight, he took a couple bites of chicken and one carrot slice to help it go down. This is progress. The day before yesterday, in the afternoon in PT, Archer maneuvered himself through two narrow tables to his gym. Pretty skillful driving for a rookie with a sip and puff and a button he activates with his ear. They positioned a large kidney bean shaped wooden table around Archer and then placed his left arm in a leather sleeve attached to a board on wheels, like a skateboard with casters that rolled sideways and all around. Archer began moving his left arm with the strength of his biceps back and forth, back and forth along this table. It took a lot of effort and grit. He was very determined. It looked like good form for a skilled lacrosse player in fast motion, but in this case, slow motion, warding off a defensive player with that clean, fast, sweet back and forth of his arm cradling the ball. Archer was good at it right away. It was a great moment. Then his OT told me she had him sing me to the tunes blaring in the gym as she had him playing Name That Music Artist. She said Archer knew them all. That's our Arch. I would like to have seen him singing. She may have been exaggerating a bit, but we are all so pulling for him to keep up his spirits because he can get low and it scares everyone a bit. He still can't talk, but he can mouth things, and we read his lips now. But he's still very stoic. I personally find his stoicism a bit okay, as he and I have talked about his conversations with God, and I know he and God are working it out. I pray the creative miracle prayer over Archer every day and I dab holy water from Lourdes on his fingers and toes, and I massage them, telling him it's love and energy, and that I know his body is creating connections every day as we breathe and speak. He always listens very attentively and nods. He is a believer. Oh, what a gift that God gives us. The gift of believing. I mean, doesn't it feel good to believe? It does. It's so hopeful. I think we should really give thanks for our capacity to believe. It's a concept. And what distinguishes us from the animal kingdom is human beings made in the image of God 
is that we can form concepts. What a gift to be a believer. I do recall a strong feeling that God was truly surrounding us. I felt like I could feel and sense his presence everywhere. Billy had sent me a text earlier that day that I had responded to. Gives me goosebumps, Holy Spirit, up and down my back. Well, what he had written to me was, quote, Try to get your hands on Pope Francis's speech today. It is all about being relational, Louise. We have such a big mission and calling, I believe. I pondered that as I knew Billy was still aching that we were not able to launch our book that took three years plus to write and then had been with our publisher the last year. And this week, while I did not write about it in my family and friends updates, we had to let go eight staff members, six of whom we had hired a mere two weeks before Archer's injury to help us with how the world would be changed with relational choices for our nonprofit. I remember pondering how very hard even the daily relational choices can be, not to mention the larger ones on commerce and public policy. I thought about my plight with our rehab doctor. I wanted to stand for something without having to be against something or someone. I wanted to be strong and open. It's such discernment. Well, Billy told me the Pope was coming to the United States. I knew I had to find a way to get to Philadelphia from Atlanta, but I wasn't sure how to leave Archer for even a night. So much of the world loved this Pope. He was a pillar of strength and compassion. I wanted to feel his presence. I wanted to be in the presence of this holy man who had written to us. Remember that letter? I remember thinking over and over about how when Archer had drowned and blacked out that he had told me he had talked with God and that God gave him the choice to die or to live. And Archer had said, if it is your will, God, my preference is to live. I know I already told you that, but it really stuck with me. I felt that God was surely going to do amazing things through Archer, and I wanted to figure out how I could get to Philadelphia to see the Pope. And I know I digress a bit, but what I am finding most about believing that I like the most, sort of like the best part, the piece de resistance, as my great Aunt Tucci used to say, is that believing allows me to be in this world of reality while also 
holding true to a greater truth that we just can't see yet, but I know is possible. It's like being in two worlds. They do not have to clash. These two worlds have the potential to actually complement each other. It's like they can be in dialogue with each other, with one very earthy and the other holding the mystery, like body and soul. Well, this belief of ours, I don't know what it will look like, the miracle, but I do know God is working on it right now. I know the fibers in Archer's body are finding new connections and pathways they did not have before. An earthly intellectual view of that would be, of course, the body has that capacity. That's fine. The body itself is a miracle. You think of your body and all the things it does. Many things that are still unexplainable by any brilliant scientist or doctor. I mean, that is miraculous unto itself. Thank you, God, for the miracle of how our bodies have so many parts of workings that are still a mystery to man. The clash of the two worlds of earthly reality and faith and what cannot be seen or explained seem to be particularly so in medicine and prayers. As it seemed, Archer and I were trying to walk the bridge between both. Couldn't there be integration? While one was scientific, detail-oriented, and painstakingly exact and measurable, the other was expansive, quantum-oriented, and focused on potential. I needed the latter so badly, like an unceasing love that can soften a hardened heart. I knew Archer's body was making unseen connections each and every day, and some could be studied and explained scientifically. I also believed his body was making unseen connections that could not yet be seen. I reflected back on the surgeons and ICU doctors who put their faith in proven methods. Occasionally, some of those methods didn't work. And I thought of the doctors, and they felt Archer was therefore a failure. And they rejected Archer, since their methods couldn't succeed. I thought of those doctors who didn't believe Archer would make it certainly not make it this far. We had to keep believing in what was possible. If we didn't, then what? It did seem, though, that in the rehab gym, those dedicated to physical rehabilitation had the worldview that 
any gain in physical healing would help Archer regain his agency and quality of life. Oh, I was so grateful to them. When the two worlds of medicine and believing what is possible are combined, it is very powerful and very hopeful. Thursday night, September 24th, 2015, day 51. Since our last couple weeks have been so tiring, there is many a day that I tell Archer that his job is to work hard and concentrate on his body, to use God's gift of intellect that manifests in ancient and modern medicine and new technology, and to have faith. That's Archer's job. I tell him my job is to love him and encourage that and to help him and find him the best support we can find. I then tell him the rest is up to God, but we have to do our part. And I thank you again, dear prayer warriors and Archer's army for doing your job so well. You have so willingly carried the mantle so valiantly, praying and not ceasing. It is so good to pray and be close to God. That's a meaningful job. Just think, everyone can have a meaningful job at any time. Yesterday morning, Archer's PT took place in his room. (laughs) It was pretty exciting. We sent Dad a video. Woo-hoo! They wheeled a table up to Archer in his chair. He sipped and puffed to get closer. Then they attached an iPad to the edge of the table and presented Archer with a mouth stick. I loved it because the mouth end was wrapped in a rubber hospital hygiene glove. And his OT said, I'm not putting in an order for you to have a mouse stick because you're not going to need one. You got that? You're not. And I'm going to let you borrow this mouse stick, though, so you can strengthen your neck muscles. Here's the game. She went to an app of a bright-colored circles dot on the screen. The object of the game was for Archer to place the stick being held in his mouth with his teeth and lips onto a color and drag it so that a line appears to connect it to another same colored dot elsewhere on the screen. The stick, mind you, is about 16 inches in length and is not light as a feather, but has a little weight to it as it's made of hollow steel. Archer was a pro. He had done this once last week, so he was racing through the levels of Challenge 4, then 12, then up to 40. And she said, Okay, you're too good for this. Let me see you do this. And she flipped to another app of the game Traffic. Remember Traffic? That cute little game you take in the car on long rides with your children? It's a small plastic square tray with different colored cars and trucks in it. 
with a little red car somewhere on the board, like a traffic jam, with all the pieces all locked up like a puzzle. You have the ability to slide them around by moving one to get to the other. Remember that game? The object is to get the red car out. Well, I warned his OT that Archer has been a master of the Rubik's Cube since he was 10 and could figure out any combination in a couple or so minutes. Sure enough, he figured out the traffic game after some grit and determination on how to work the stick to move the cars. I think it was very satisfying to him. (laughs) Pretty exciting, huh? Oh, yeah. And after 90 minutes of those games every other day for last week and this, we saw the difference today when Archer held his own neck up in the brace when he was lifted out of his chair and back into his bed. Oh, he was still scared, I think, of rupturing it or hurting his neck, even in the soft collar. But no one spotted him for the first time. That's a big deal for his confidence. So, let's say, all right, Archer Strong. I want you to recall today, or tonight, or tomorrow, what it feels like when you shift from fear or guardedness to a place of greater confidence. It feels great. It's so freeing. He's on his way. I just know he is. Yesterday afternoon, Archer's counselor brought him back to the room early as he was falling asleep in his chair. But there was still amazing good news to report. They detected a trace impulse in Archer's left elbow muscle his deltoid that has the potential to make his left wrist move. Very exciting. We celebrated the moment, even knowing it may not appear again for a while. But it was there, they told me. They are believers, too. That really buoyed Archer. And then there was this morning with his OT, as another very awesome moment. Although we awoke this morning and one of the techs noticed that Archer's right thigh was slightly larger than his left, so we waited for a sonogram to rule out a blood clot. And that little blip caused Archer to not have time for breakfast because of the other doctor visits we had to have. So when he finally went to OT, She took his oatmeal that he had refused to eat, unless I prepared it for him the way he likes with butter and brown sugar. I know. It's probably his way, maybe of keeping me close, maybe of showing his own independence. We'll wean him. But it's like a young child. Love and limits has its time and place, and this was not the time or the place. But anyway, she said, Mom, make it his way, and then we are leaving and taking it with us. Tell Mom you are going to show her a cool thing when we get back. 
I loved that. Sure enough, when they returned, she had built a contraption for him that any mechanical engineer would be proud of that had a large rubber band for tension and a metal arm that pivoted like a college desk lamp. It was affixed to the chair, and in that metal arm was resting Archer's arm, and in the end was stuck a fork. She held up a container of mandarin oranges, which Archer likes a lot, and he awkwardly managed to get a fork into the container she held, and then to his mouth. How about that? It was very hard to do. He had to concentrate very, very hard. And his pain was back up to six. And then he promptly fell asleep in his chair. A big day already. As for his respiratory, his oxygen need moved from 25 yesterday to 21, the same level you and I breathe. Another big step. The medical staff continued to enter Archer's room and loved the freshness of the oxygen from the plants and the natural essential oils. We almost always have beautiful music or lively music and still are working to create a healing sanctuary. Well, they come in and comment that they don't want to leave. It's sweet. But I was stunned when one of our nurses came on duty this morning after our grueling night. And I could smell him as he entered our oxygenated sanctuary. He was a smoker. I felt the flash of judgmental thinking. How could someone in this profession doing this kind of work choose to smoke? It baffled me. No, it rattled me. And I found myself again walking that tightrope between judgment and curiosity. I chose to set the judgment aside for a moment and be curious. After all, I could be wrong about his smoking. So when he returned for a deep suction session, and we finished it after three threadings of the tube, I asked, Do you smoke? He got a bit flustered, and he said, Oh, can you tell? I'm so sorry. I try to wash my hands well. I'm really sorry. And I said, oh, no, no, actually, that's not why I asked. You just deep suctioned my son and watched him writhe like he's being electrocuted and heard him pleading for oxygen. Breath. It's so precious. You just surprised me. That's all. And he said, I know, I should quit. I really should. I'm just not motivated enough. And I said, what would motivate you? 
And he said, I know. I know. I've just smoked for so long. And I said, well, maybe it would be a kindness to yourself, like loving yourself to take care of what is so precious. You have an incredible gift to breathe without constriction. Or maybe it would be a kindness to these quads on vents, like giving it up for them. It's just an idea. Let's all breathe again. Oh, it never gets old. There is always newness in every breath. If you feel constricted, slow down. Relax your shoulders. Really feel into that belly breath. Someday, I hope Archer feels that deep belly breath. It's a place of deep wisdom. That conversation with the respiratory therapist has stuck with me for quite some time. It was rather surreal because what I haven't told you was that the nights were rough and raw. We were often up all night, suctioning Archer for hours. And there had been some unexpected code blues, which just don't happen in rehab, but were happening with Archer as his body struggled to breathe. And he struggled to live. But even in that context, that conversation with the RT was one of those reminders to me. A reminder that medical professionals are just as human as you and I. They're struggling with their own lives too, more or less. You know, movies and media often illustrate medical folks as machine-like or all-knowing. And you know, they can go, 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 go on ships back to back for days on end like superheroes at best or robots at worst. Or they're depicted as knowing the mysteries of the body, their knowledge to be revered about how to keep us healthy and alive. And that knowledge also comes with a language we just don't speak. But both depictions can be problematic. How can we forget that our doctors and nurses and medical therapists, even our healers, are also starkly human, like the rest of us? To forget this view might greatly impede a patient's care. I think our doctors need our help, and our help can come in the form of kind words or clarifying questions or a heart-to-heart conversation. It's not a trivial saying that communication is key. Sometimes it's uncomfortable communication, but it can be okay when there's mutual respect as humans, 
It seems essential. Oh, let us not forget that. And if they don't have it with us, we can have it with them. That conversation the RT and I had may have seemed like a passing interaction, but it had a real impact on me. Sometimes it's the little moments of tenderness or insight that feel like the biggest victories. Well, one of those moments for Archer was being able to see his friends and receive their kindness. I had sent a number of texts to friends telling them they would be welcome any time to come to the Shepherd Center. And we were past the two-week mark, and Archer was weary. I then got the text that a small group was planning to come. Oh, I was delighted. It was like bringing the McDonough High School lounge into Archer's rehab room, even though he was not able to speak or move. To connect to his old social life was like a moment in time of teenage normalcy. I think this is a huge part of recovery and something to weigh going so far from home and how to bring home to you. Well, I had a chance to interview two of those close high school friends, barely 17, who came from Baltimore to visit Archer. Here are some excerpts, first from Price Campbell and then from Riley Thacker, as we looked back seven years later. You and some friends were the first to come to the Shepherd Center in Atlanta. And I'm curious, do you remember how that came about? Yes, I remember learning that that's where he was being treated. And I have family in Atlanta. And so my immediate thought was to call my grandparents and ask them exactly how far away is the Shepherd Institute from your house. And it wasn't far at all. And I felt like that was just, you know, a ridiculous source of access to our friend that I had to either take advantage of or for myself or offer up to any of the hundreds of people that were dying to know how he was or help him and see how he was. So, you know, I ended up extending the offer to see him to whoever could come whenever and it ended up being Riley and Jeffers and I. And so that's, you know, and it wasn't a thought. We just, we had the opportunity. We had your permission. We were going. There was no question about it. Well, it was a complete godsend for me because I had been writing in the updates, please, please come. <laughs> and I was very consumed by trying to figure out how to get Archer's friends to him. I was very <laughs> worried about depression and I wanted to keep Archer's spirits up. And I really have believed for all five of my children in really nurturing their relationships with their friends and getting out of the way so they can just have them kind of naturally. 
and most of the time that that has served well. You know, some of the times I've let him go and it's like, oh gosh, you know, needed to monitor that one. That probably wasn't very good, but by and large. And so, Price, you texted me and and reached out and said, you know, hi, Mrs. Semft, this is Price Campbell. Would it be all right? And I, I was just so blown away because I was still trying to figure out and I was beginning to to put out how can I get frequent flyer miles? How can I get all these mm-hmm. kids down here? I was figuring out the lodging. But you, Price, with that insight and that feeling of, gosh, my grandparents live so close and you know, it's just kind of meant to be, that was the beginning. That was the spark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did not know that, but thank you for sharing. Yeah. So I remember when he came because we were trying to organize it and the Shepherd Center believes they, you know, they have young people who come from all over the place, but a number of them are from Georgia mm-hmm. and they have Friday afternoon where parents are not allowed. Uh, and so I'm like, perfect. But then it was an issue of how to, you know, you all would have to leave school a little bit early, you know, and, and fly down and all that. And that would that was asking a lot, you know, for juniors when you're applying to colleges and wanting to do really well in school. And that, that was not lost on me. But um, you all did that. And do you remember any of those details coming on Friday? I mean, logistics, how you got there, things like that? Yeah, uh, well, I remember the time we spent with my grandparents was strange and surreal, and they didn't totally understand all of the details with Archer. So we were kind of unfolding everything that had happened to them as they were, because they knew some, they knew that we had a dear friend that was injured very badly, and um, his health was very uncertain at that point. But when we were with them, it was interesting because it was like we were unfolding chronologically everything that had happened to him up until that very point and then you know once we got to the end of that story it was like time to go see him so it was very a lot there was a lot of anticipation going in to see him and I just remember feeling like usually in my life with tough situations I feel like I'm decent at arming myself with whatever I need to help whoever it is I'm helping or to help myself if that's what I need but I remember feeling very much like I don't know what he needs I don't know if he needs as little for me as possible if he needs company if he needs a ton of support if he needs you know us to just fill silence but I was extremely nervous because if anything I just wanted to help and not harm and I just didn't know what mental state he was in at that point and I didn't know exactly how I was going to do that so there was a lot of anticipation going into it I remember that in in spades the look on all three of your young beautiful faces as you it was sort of exciting you know to have you come and then to meet you and your grandparents brought you over and I know they were a little concerned just about you know were you gonna how long would you stay would you come back and and then all of a sudden, it was my meeting you outside of Archer's room, and then, do you remember, and then bringing you in. And I, I realized, literally, I'll just never forget it, as you crossed the threshold, like, into his room, the, just the visage of all mm-hmm. three of you, 
um, because you couldn't see Archer at first, but you could see his yeah. room as it kind of, you know, unfolded before you. Very decorated and, you know, in that way, very vibrant. But that you could hear the machines. You know, it, it was, wasn't was a party. Archer was in bed. He still couldn't talk. Mm-hmm. And I remember wanting to be as gracious and welcoming as I could, but to prepare you. And I remember sharing with you that there was a stack of mail that Mm -hmm. Archer had been receiving and -hmm. it would be there for you if you wanted to read it to him. You didn't have to because I I thought, yeah, you remember, I thought, what the Mm -hmm. heck will they, will they do? It might be so awkward, but what could Mm -hmm. there be something to do? Cause Mm -hmm. I know Archer would want to hear them and read them. And then just to say, to let you know how much I knew Archer really did want to see you. Mm -hmm. Uh, He really did. And so there really wasn't anything you could do uh, to be harmful. And I, I also remember asking you all to just be yourselves. Just carry mm-hmm. on. Tell them what's going on in school. You know, crack up, have fun, make jokes. Um, you know, whatever crazy things are happening, what you normally would yeah. have found, you know, funny or interesting, just share it all with them. And then yeah. I remember leaving you. Do you remember any of that? Yes, I very clearly. I remember you walk leaving and kind of saying that, you know, you were going to take the time to take care of some things. And I remember kind of breathing and saying, oh, okay, good, we're helping. Because really, I was I was terrified that we were going to somehow make it worse. Maybe, the, I don't know if Riley and Jeffers were thinking that. But I just, you know, I wanted to make sure us coming there was for him and not for us totally and for you and not for us and so just initially when I saw that you were able to go do some things because we were there I felt immediately better just from just step one she can go do some things okay we're helping for starters and then you know it's so amazing to hear you now say that just us being there was a big help because I don't think we just didn't know really what to do we didn't know if he wanted you know our attention on the trauma that he'd gone through, if he wanted acknowledgement of it, or does he want to shove it into the corner of the room and talk about anything else, please? Yeah. And I think we leaned that way because it was clear. I remember walking into the room and not knowing what to expect, but seeing all the photos on the wall and all the letters and all the things people sent. And it hit me like, Oh, he's just, he's been here for a while. For some reason in my brain, I thought it would, he would look like not so a part of the hospital room. But when I saw it and it was just him all over the walls and all the people that loved him, it was very clear to me that he just had been doing this day and night and day and night without seizing. And he was so deep into this that of course he wants something else, distraction, a friend, something to break the monotony. And once we all kind of realized that maybe that's what he needed more, it became a little easier to know what to do. But it hit me when I walked in, when I saw the photos, it mentally hit me how long he'd been dealing with everything alone. Yeah. And it blew my mind and was a whole other wave of realization. Yeah. It wasn't like a transitory 
um, kind of thing, or he'll, we're just coming to visit him in the hospital, and he'll be back in school in a couple yeah. weeks. Yeah, all those pictures on the wall, really symbolic that he would he he was settled in there. It was going to be a while. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so wonderful and interesting at the same time to hear your memories of. Do you lean in to the injury itself, or do you distract, you know, away from it, and the moving towards more of the distraction? And I'm I'm reminded, I I believe of in my memory, if it serves me well, that if if it wasn't you all, it was others who came. But I'm pretty sure I was, you know, I was learn I was cutting my teeth on our first visitors, and I had written down exactly mm-hmm. what I wanted to share with you, and and one of them was to please not be afraid of Archer's uh, spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can get close to him. You can touch him. Um, yeah. Even if he can't feel you, his body, I remember saying his body knows that it's being touched. It, mm-hmm. His brain might not register it, but his body knows it. And to feel that, you know, to not, not be afraid because it, it's, it's Archer. It's still Archer there. He was still there. His body had changed, but his soul and spirit were still very much their wonderful selves. I thought it was courageous of Archer's high school friends to come, and equally courageous and trusting of their parents to allow it. Here are some excerpts from my interview with Archer's other dear friend, Riley Thacker, who accompanied Price and Jeffers Inslee to visit. We begin with her memories of the McDonough High School Lounge for each grade, where she and Archer and their circle of friends spent a lot of time. Each year we had a lounge, so I remember like the freshman was upstairs and then the next three grades were in like the bottom level of Allen Building at McDonough, so like each year you kind of graduated to a new to a new space. And it was always called that, like the freshman lounge or the sophomore lounge. So I do remember, I know the freshman lounge had like couches and just art. That's where everybody's like lockers and stuff were to keep backpacks and stuff in. But our junior lounge was when, like after Archer was injured, we had every year you got to like paint your lounge sort of, and like the class would decide, or there was people who were in the art department who would, like the students who were in the art department would kind of come together and think of something that had to do with our class and it was always obviously something like orange and black for McDonough colors or with an eagle or something but we painted ours junior year all green and like Archer Strong was in everyone's signed the wall and stuff oh so I do remember that specific to the lounges like wow um, yeah everyone obviously was like a no-brainer like every usually people are like oh we could do an eagle we could do some you know something McDonough related but then I think any when it came to that everyone's like yes paint it green paint it green because you know? of because um, of the green wristbands yeah the, yeah uh, pray for archer um, archer strong wristbands yeah yeah they did that that uh, vibrant green did become mm-hmm. like the archer archer color riley also shared what she recalled about her visit to the shepherd center to see archer I remember flying there and I remember going to his like therapy with him in the big therapy room. It was like a gym almost. 
I remember there was like all along the ceiling, there was like tiles that people had painted with like motivational quotes. And there's all these walls of, of like messages that people had wrote. And I, I feel like we probably signed this one giant whiteboard had like quotes from people and messages from people. There's like a therapy dog. I remember that was there, but yeah, I remember his, like all of the posters and stuff were the same posters came obviously with you guys and hung in that room also so much stuff. When you all came, you were some of, you were the first of mm-hmm. Archer's uh, peers to come and it was such a generous act that you all flew down and it really was setting the, I think the casting the die for mm-hmm. what was possible because it was then that Archer had had this like little uptick and yeah. how we could go into the gym and what was possible. But that hopefulness um, yeah. that, that you all experienced. I did. I also just remember having the apartment, if you will, that Shepard mm-hmm. uh, allows us and to say, no, you can stay there. You can stay there. But having Price's grandmother in the same neighborhood, even like in that yeah. Buckhead area and thinking this is just this is just too good to be true. Right. And and you're wanting to then stay and spend the night at the Shepherd Center. Am I thinking, yeah. I just so wanted Archer to have his friends. I wanted to leave you alone. I wanted you to have fun yeah. and wanted you just to do whatever, you know, 17 year olds are going to do with each other and yeah. talk with each other and, you know, it, whatever, you know, cut up or just be yourselves. And the night was wearing on and Price's grandmother was getting, I think a little worried. <laughs> do you remember any of that? Yeah. Like, okay, time to go now, guys. And we're like, we're just hanging out. Like, I think I remember just in general, when it came to like deciding to go, it's like, okay, no one knew how long he would be there for, I don't think. And being a flight away, it's kind of like, okay, well, if we're not going, like who is someone is going to go, you know, like people, he needed his friends there. Like obviously he had family members and things like that, but like who knew how long he was going to be there for, like there had to be other people, you know what I mean? Like just to get, I mean, I just think, say that thinking like if it was me in that situation, like I would want just something different, something new to talk about with people, someone from an outside perspective that maybe won't be talking about the hospital or maybe like if he wanted to be filled in on things going on at home or like at school, just something different, you know, than being in the same room or like obviously nothing wrong with being surrounded with your family. You guys were there all the time, but like just having new people, like a fresh, fresh faces, literally just to see, I feel like, could have provided some type of like hope or upbeat up. I think it did. I think it did. Do you guys remember my just leaving you to be? I'd I'd come and check on you maybe once or twice a day, but leaving you for the the whole weekend um, and what that was like or what you did with Archer or what you talked about. I mean, he couldn't talk then. Yeah. How you communicated. I remember just there was obviously times we could just hang out and watch TV and be like, okay, we're here to visit. Like we don't have to do anything, you know, but just being able to hang out and like literally with our friend who we hadn't been able to just sit and hang out with, you know, um, was huge and hopefully huge for him too, to just have like, even if we weren't, we're not sitting there talking and gossiping, but just sitting to some people, new people to sit and hang out with something so familiar just hanging out yeah and then able to go to therapy and meet I remember we met some of his I think it was there yeah there's pictures we have with like some of his 
like therapist that we'd walk down around with. But I just remember that was like the first time probably ever, like, which is just such a weird thing because now it's so normal of like picking up like water and holding it for him to drink, you know? And now it's just kind of like so natural now. But like thinking back to that was probably like my first experience, like helping feed him or helping get him like a drink of water or something. Yeah. Which is just crazy the, to like one of the so look pops. back at that time. And now it's like, okay, we're at our McDonough reunion seven years later. And it's like, oh, you want a beer? You want some food? You know, and we're just like, it's so normal now. But it's crazy to think back on like the first time of doing that, you that, know? That tentativeness and now yeah. Archer still needs to, to be fed, but just how normal yeah. it is for those who are really close to him. Thank you to all of Archer's friends and the kids at McDonough School. I truly hope you know how powerful your Archer Strong chants were, knowing all the things you were doing back at school to keep Archer on your minds and hearts were, and just how amazing it was to see those pictures of you wearing those green Archer Strong wristbands. You lifted our spirits, and we will be forever grateful for your kindness, well wishes, love, and compassion. I just met a nurse practitioner in New Jersey. Yeah, seven years later, someone I did not know who told me when we met that she still wears an Archer Strong wristband. Seven years later, on her stethoscope, she texted me a photo a couple days later of herself in her scrubs with that green band around her stethoscope. Sure enough, she said she was sending well wishes too. Amazing. And speaking of well wishes, I tried to describe to my family and friends in my update this day about the mail Archer was receiving at the Shepherd Center. The volunteer mail staff here also marvels at the many decorations and says they've never seen a person receive such amounts of mail. They say Archer holds the record for the number of packages delivered in one day. <laughs> no, you all hold the record for the number of well wishes as they come from you. We cherish each and every one. He so looks forward to the mail and the pictures you send and to the thought of friends coming to visit on the weekends. It might be the main reason why he is not suffering depression at this time. Dear God, thank you for all the prayer warriors that Archer has not fallen into depression. I was deeply concerned about this and knew it was very real. You can't go one or two days with quadriplegia without it being a daily balancing act. But thanks to friends coming, the devil that lurked around the corner was warded off. Oh, I felt that devil was licking his chops to get Archer just when he was low. If you are ever able to go visit someone in a hospital, know how very valuable your presence is even if just for a short while. 
but consider staying a little while to chat. It's so good for the soul. (laughs) It's good for the souls. And as for those making a long trip to visit their friend Archer, it did take a village. You heard about Price's grandparents. Well, another one of those village people was our dear Atlanta angel, Mary McCune Dillon. You met Mary in our last episode. She helped us with the battle to keep Archer's spirits lifted. Here's another excerpt of our interview about how we all, specifically Archer's friends, fought the good fight against depression and the integration of the loss for all of us. How do I get his friends down to Atlanta? That was just so top of on my list of, you know, logistically, like, how can we figure that out? Yeah. And you guys were the godsend because you truly became the chauffeurs for boys and girls coming to and from the Atlanta airport every Friday, every Sunday. The nicest, greatest group of kids we ever met. They were lovely. And and your kids, of course, but his buddies and um, those rides, those car rides were great. And sometimes it was the job as the driver to be like, okay, so here's what's going to happen. Um, I'm going to drive you to Shepherd and Archer, you know, he's really, his voice isn't there yet. He's going to use his mouth to talk to you like lip. You're going to have to read his lips. He's feeling X or he's feeling Y. This is a good week. This hasn't been a great week or whatever it is, just kind of frame it up. And also yeah, no, you, you basically, I think we're giving orientations, yeah. you know, for, with each group of, of kids, yeah. high school kids having to orient them to what they were going to see because it was it was pretty stark there were often tears you know as a parent of a 17 year old at the time although female i've seen a lot of the 17 year old boys around here and i just i didn't want it to be weird for them so i said whatever you do don't get weird don't get quiet if you're the funny guy be the funny guy If you're the sensitive one, be the sensitive one, but don't change who you are because you walked into a hospital room and your friend is in a bed because this is your, this is your opportunity to give him, to lift him. So he's not going to be happy if the, if whoever of you is the funny guy isn't being funny or if whoever of you is the sensitive one said, so just be who you are and don't get weird on me. That's what I would say. (laughs) That is so Because I saw it with my kids, you know, they show up and they meet Archer. Of course, they didn't know Archer beforehand, but it was kind of like, don't get weird. This is not a time for that. This is a normal 17 year old boy. Something happened and, and you gotta, you gotta keep it real. That's another just amazing God wink that here you are, you know, our old friendship, but you know, coming and you also have high schoolers to know that's the message to yeah. be yourself and don't get weird. Yeah. If you got big feelings you're not okay with, keep it together till you're not in the room. I was very determined to make sure that Archer had 
time with his friends by themselves. Yeah. And there were a couple staff actually who, who said to me, like, you're going to leave, you know, you're just going to leave them all in there. And, and honestly, the answer was absolutely. Cause I then did sort of the medical orientation when they got there. But the first thing was probably coming off of what you had beautifully done for them when they did see Archer, there were just a number uh, almost every weekend. It was the boys. Um, in fact, it really chokes me up. Yeah. You know, they would need to exit yeah. one of them really quickly. Yeah. And I, and I would wait because I, I knew and figured that that first um, walking in to see their friend. And I think what, um, as was reported to me, you know, later, but I think what just shocked them so much was how real it was and that it wasn't like, oh my gosh, you know, you're going to get, you're going to get better. Um, or, you know, gosh, you got a really bad case of the flu, you know, and then you'll see you back at school. Um, I, I think those boys and the girls, as, and, you know, as well, Archer had such, has such good friends, boys and girls. Yeah. I think that was what was most shocking. And it's kind of, and I think for a lot of them, it was also like, you know, that could have been me. Yeah. Everybody's on vacation. Not, and it was not, um, it was not a, a normal scenario. When you walk into a hospital room, sometimes you think, oh, hospital room, you know, it, that Hoyer lift thing over his bed, that contraption that lifted him into the wheelchair, that was a big old machine. And then obviously he had the vent in his, the trach and the vent going and the catheter and, you know, all the hooks and oxygen tanks, everything yeah. and the beeping and everything. It was not a long machine. Yeah, it was, yeah. there was a lot going on in that room. There really was a lot of necessary preparation for young high school kids before they saw Archer. There was nothing normal about it. And I knew the loss was all around the board. Spinal cord injury, it's just not your everyday injury or reason for a hospital visit. And kids, even smart and well-intentioned kids, need to be cared for and thought of too to prepare them so they're not too shocked. Trauma can create more trauma when we're not also thinking of all the others who are also impacted by something so severe. There's so much to juggle. But having friends who show up, well, that's the best. And Archer had a number of very dear friends. I'm sure you have experienced the bliss of having even one amazing friend at your side with you during a tough or scary or embarrassing time. It deserves to be said again, friendship is golden. <laughs> Remember the movie, The Outsiders, when Johnny Cade said to his friend, Ponyboy Curtis, Stay gold, pony boy. Stay gold. Well, I think the friendship moments Archer and his friends were having 
or something like that. Because while they were just trying to be normal, innocent high schoolers, they were growing up with some harsh realities from this experience and maybe some sobering realities. As for Archer, when they left, loneliness left him worried and panicky. But I don't think it was just loneliness. It was the fact, the cold fact, that he had no way of fending for himself or getting help when he needed it if anything went wrong. So I began to notice how we were both on high alert all the time. I mean, maybe we had been now on high alert for a long time. But the move to the rehab room only heightened the underlying sense of hyper-alertness for Archer, as best as I could surmise. Because we were not in the ICU any longer, and medical staff had to come from a different part of the Shepherd Center to assist when Archer's lungs were losing capacity to hold air for him to breathe again. I wrote to my family and friends, Archer is still pretty apprehensive about what can happen and not happen. And so it's hard to leave for any length of time as he wonders where I am. I can't blame him. It's a wonderful place here, but you are really on your own for eating, dressing, and anything personal. That's good in a way. It's just like going back to having a young child and discerning the difference in providing love and safety and encouraging independence. Well, my style of parenting probably hasn't changed all that much, for better or worse. I will push him to try and I'll back off when it's up to him. I will give Archer slack when he gets angry. As I told him, anger is a good emotion because it lets us know we are alive and we care about something. But I tell him what we do with our anger is what matters. And internalizing it is as damaging as hurting somebody and that somebody can be yourself so speaking of anger when I couldn't understand what Archer wanted today as he kept mouthing yellow to me and he was getting quite blustery and red in the face and agitated and I was searching his body for something yellow he then snapped my mouth dummy I realized right away it was that gold sip and puff stick on the end of the white coil that operated the forward and backward motion on his chair. It had slipped too far off from his mouth and he was agitated and mad. I readjusted it quickly as it was a bit of a scene. I had been frantic trying to do or get what he was desperately trying to convey because I thought he was in danger or in some kind of pain. But then, after 
he had the peace in his mouth again and was contented, almost like a baby with a pacifier back in his mouth. Even though I never used pacifiers because of nursing, the similarity was clear to me about safety and comfort. I said to him, okay, bud, all okay now? And he nodded affirmatively. I then said to him, looking him in the eye, listen, you are never to call your mother dummy again. You hear me? That's unkind and I will not stand for it. He looked at me and then he nodded. We had an understanding. We both went about our business. A little while passed and I said, are we okay? You know I love you. And he nodded and mouthed, I love you too. It was like that in our home as they were growing up. I just would not allow the kids to call each other names or to be nasty with each other or unkind, and certainly not to their dad or me. Regardless of the infraction or perceived infraction or how angry anybody was, they could get angry. I wanted them to respect each other and themselves in the same way I respected myself and them and not settle for anyone treating them poorly or thinking that's okay. I thought to myself, was I just too tough on Archer? Was I asking too much just then? Should I have let it slide? I mean, it wasn't that big of a deal. What do you think? I've been reflecting on that tonight. I can see how tragedies and setbacks that relegate good people to lives in wheelchairs or like Archer to a life as a quad for now can really give cause to be frustrated, quite angry, embittered, and even to become, dare I say, entitled. It seemed to me it's likely that those situations happen not only because of a personal choice of how to handle it or not being loved enough through it, and supported, but because of caregivers enabling them due to their own feelings of guilt or unworthiness. Why you, not me? Or even thinking it's just kinder to let someone with a special need get their way or just plain all easier. So I imagine out of exhaustion or other not-so-healthy reasons, caregivers might be tempted to give those they love who have special needs a pass on civility, courtesy, respect of others, or even good manners. If that's true, 
don't want that to happen to Archer or to us. And I've wanted our children to know that. And I hope they do. I think they do. So why change that now for Archer? Simply because of this accident. I think the discernment for me is to ensure that my personalized standard of respect is founded in love. Love of self and love of other, like the golden rule. I want for Archer what I want for myself regarding his well-being. I don't want to do anything to Archer that I would not want him to do to me. And so it goes. I want to instill in Archer respect for himself enough that he can still respect his mom even under these circumstances when I fumble. Simple, really, but can be so hard. Respect. I can't force it. I can't demand it. But I can request it. And I can model it. And when I falter, I can get back up and still love myself and ask for another try. And that's what I had to revisit when I said to Archer, are we okay about earlier? And so it was. That is how I reconciled my exchange with Archer. It's good to have boundaries and feel that clarity. Tough love is still just that. Tough. But it's always love. And sometimes it's necessary for the learning of both parties involved. Tough love is not one-sided. It's not doled out. It's tough to have to be tough. It's hard on all involved when it's tough love. Because when it's love, you care a lot. Tough situations by our human existence cause us many difficult emotions like frustration and resentment. I had this on my mind a lot. I think because I was just sensing things were not going well with our rehab doctor. It had been a few days since we had seen her and she had not even stopped by Archer's room. I was thinking about boundaries and healthy boundaries a lot. 
When you love someone, it's always worth it to get ahead of a problem that could create distance. I wondered if that is how it would work with a doctor relationship. I was seeing some clarity and healthy boundaries in a place where I still did not know all the rules or social customs yet. I wrote more to my family and friends. I'm pretty sure that's what my own mom would say, but she would call it good manners. She was a devotee of Emily Post and lived by the adage that good manners were always about forbearance of self to provide ease to another person. I was thinking, I really wish I could call my mom now and talk with her about all of this. But she has dementia, Alzheimer's, and gets quite upset about Archer's accident each time she hears something about it, as if for the first time. So it's cruel to talk with her about it. I really miss her. I know she loves Archer very dearly, and I love her so much. But I think it's the basic self-respect and respect for others piece that she showed us good manners. Thank you, Mom, for living a life of good manners, always taking the high road, being real, loving others and being kind, being fun, and being the hostess with the mostess, just like our ancestor Dolly Madison. True, I'm not kidding. And not fanning the flames of entitlement gossip or triangling between your friends or your children as I have never ever heard you talking badly about someone else I can hear you saying hells bells and cockle shells but never a mean thing about somebody I am really really grateful I'm especially grateful as an adult my siblings are absolutely unbelievably selfless in this journey with me and Billy and our children and we have found deeper connections in our togetherness and shared vulnerabilities respecting our paths and how we can support each other <laughs> thank you Trip, Elizabeth Will and Lillian I really love you guys, but you know that. I also really love Billy's siblings and I'm so grateful. Oh, I see where I'm going with this. So an act that stems from a view that another is pitiful, as in insufficient or inadequate, it seems to me that that is a double weakness of both self and other. So there, I think I worked out what I was reactive to a couple days ago. And while it wasn't okay that she said it, I believe she's a good person and I forgive her just as I hope she would forgive me if I happened to slight her somehow and maybe I did.
we now have mutual respect, deeper respect because of our dialogue. It's a beautiful thing. Thank you, dear God, for beauty and beautiful things. I remember pondering this a long time as I sat in the dark watching Archer's monitors on the nights he was coding. Conflict doesn't have to be a bad thing. As a mediator, I've seen my fair share of conflict and I've seen how it can transform. There's a reason that conflict resolution is such a renowned phrase. We crave unity and ease and okay relations with each other. We do. But conflict resolution doesn't often provide that because the focus is just on a solution. I mean, that's not all bad and indeed can be quite good. But there is something more. There is something more in conflict transformation. But we can lead to a solution too. But its goal is something else, something more valuable. A change in the quality of how people interact with each other. Oh, I thought again about our rehab doctor. I knew the body and the brain and the heart detest conflict. And I could resonate with all of that myself in that moment. I mean, there were good things, but it was also a mess with Archer's ongoing lungs and breathing issues and exhaustion and falling asleep in his daily one hour of PT because we'd been up all night battling for life. I so wanted to get conflict transformation with our rehab doctor. We needed to stay. They were the ones to help Archer off the ventilator and lung machines. But I knew that to have a breakthrough with our rehab doctor would require unearthing the most distressing aspects of that interaction. And that that might not be pretty but without a safe process could make things worse. But there I go again. Maybe it was going to be okay with our doctor. I mean, maybe my concerns were unfounded, but my mind went back to what I knew, conflict transformation. It's the only way when there's been so much distance. Why was she keeping her distance? Conflict transformation is like emotional healing. I mean, you got to go back. I realized Archer and I were probably going to have to go back too. Someday. For all of this. But as for then at Shepherd, we had to focus on staying. We needed at least conflict resolution rather than someone making a decision that you have no say-so in. Oh yeah, I knew conflict resolution 
was often just a band-aid. But I'd take even that now, rather than the wall I felt had been put up by our rehab doctor. I had called Billy to see if he could get a meeting with her, since he was the last one she had contact with. She had not responded to my asking for a meeting. And how I yearned for conflict transformation with her. Because it is deeper. It's more real. It's never forced. But you're more likely to get to the truth. The full truth. All sides. Perspectives. I imagined having a transformative mediation session with her. And that's all I wanted from her. I wanted to collaborate with her. Not be the brunt of any decision she made unilaterally. That Archer was damaged goods. I mentioned this to our case manager that I thought our relationship with our rehab doctor was strained. And I asked how I could talk with her as I wanted it to be a good relationship. She said she could bring it up in their team meeting. I asked her if there was a process at Shepherd for me or for Archer and me to have a conversation with her, like a family meeting. Mm, there wasn't anything she knew of. But she said the rehab team got together weekly to discuss each patient but it didn't include the family or patient. And I asked, could it? She just looked at me and said, I don't know. I've never seen that. Well, I had this growing sense that the distance was a bad omen. I felt in my gut that we were being iced and I didn't want Archer to be rejected. He had so much potential. I knew it. Oh, how I yearned for a mediated dialogue with her here in this rehab hospital. It was unbearable, feeling shut out of a powerful decision that might be being made about our son. Yes, I was feeling helpless. And I closed my eyes. I asked God, how much of this was I making up in my own human drama. And how much of this was real that I needed to be on alert for and get ahead of. Please, Lord, help me to do what is best for Archer. These days are hard. I kid you not, but I looked down at my phone, at the many texts. There was a text from Billy, and he wrote, the rehab doctor said, quote, I think he will do better at home. The archer that Louise describes is not the archer we see here at Shepherd. Maybe he can come back later. I was crushed. I was spinning 
How could they do that? There's been no discussion, no inclusion. I felt like it was such a power play. It's our life, it's Archer's life. How could she do that? I called Billy, but I was a wreck. I was mad. I hung up and he texted me, just accept it. Shepard doesn't want Archer. She doesn't want him. Let's take him home. No, I was not going to take Archer home. It wasn't time yet. Archer needed to get off the ventilator and breathe on his own. And if he went home, that possibility flies out the window. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. Love heals trauma. Thank you for tuning in to the Blink of an Eye story. Tune in next week for our companion Trauma Healing Learning 9. Affirmation for Nurses with Riley Thacker. Thank you for listening. I hope you have some new insights. And thank you for telling your friends about Blink of an Eye podcast. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Listen on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. For 28 years, Baltimore Mediation has served clients worldwide by facilitating negotiation breakthroughs, believing in their capacity for meaningful face-to-face dialogue. You can learn more at baltimoremediation.com.